Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, when we were working on the story, um, working on the series, um, you know, it became clear that Irish cops were in and around Irish Northern Aid, uh, you know, quite a bit. And um, Martin Galvin, who is the publicity director of NORAID, uh, told us that they, you know, they held this sort of um, funeral march for Bobby Sands, who was an IRA volunteer who died on hunger strike in the 80s uh, in Manhattan. He died on hunger strike in Northern Ireland, but the funeral pr procession happened in Manhattan. And he describes these uh, cops saluting as the procession went by, um, which which is interesting, right? Because in Northern Ireland, the the struggle that Bobby Sands in particular was involved in was whether or not Irish volunteers being held in prison were political prisoners or if they were common criminals. And the position of the British government, of course, is that they were common criminals. So you have these Irish cops saluting, you know, uh, somebody who's deemed a common criminal by the British government, um, you know, in large numbers, you know, going through uh, lower Manhattan. Also, saluting someone who's part of an organization where targeting the police in Northern Ireland was a, you know, perfectly legitimate and a priority, you know, mm -hmm. they, they often murdered, shot, you know, um, RUC officers in Northern Ireland. So this is like really strange juxtaposition. We saw, we couldn't like confirm this, but there was supposedly the British government complained because they said that Norade had set up um, donation boxes in some of the NYPD precincts so that the, the cops were like actually just putting money in the box in the, in the station houses. Uh -huh. Oh yeah, they were they were probably shaking down drug dealers for you know whatever was in their <laughs> pocket and putting it right you know putting like a percentage of that in the box. That's yeah. beautiful. Uh, yeah, uh, and, and another a good point that you make in the show is that there is this throughout the eighties nineties like culminating with nine eleven. There is this uh, uh, increasing identification of terroristic type tactics with especially Palestinian liberation. Uh, or like, you know, uh, terrorist acts committed by Arabs, essentially. Um, even And even though these were, you know, you saw the same kind of tactics in national liberation groups all over the world, by 9-11, just the idea of terrorism and the idea of, like, extreme Muslim extremism go hand in hand. And so suddenly there's this, you know, total rejection, like you're either with us or you're with the terrorists, and the terrorists becomes a, a racialized group, and this just makes the continued uh, romanticization of IRA tactics just impossible in a way. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, there's sort of a shorthand that some people use where they sort of say that, like, you know, the thing that really put an end to the IRA and to the armed struggle was not the British Army. It wasn't the Good Friday Agreement. It was 9-11 um, that it just became impossible after 2001 to maintain this idea of, of armed struggle and engage with, you know, uh, American power in the same way where that, that the sort of like distance that Sinn Féin and the IRA could like put between themselves and, you know, uh, other quote unquote terrorist groups, uh, all of a sudden evaporates. Um, and, you see basically support for Irish Northern Aid evaporate at the same time that they, they essentially close up shop. Um, and, uh, you know, 
obviously there's no, you know, nowhere that would be um, more supportive of uh, like the American state and the war on terror than like, you know, New York City police officers um, who, you know, have to sort of like reconfigure the way that they're thinking about Ireland, thinking about Irish Northern aid. But, um, you know, when you look back on the history of the group, uh, one of the, you know, greatest stories that we actually didn't end up using in the podcast um, was told to us about the the old IRA chief of staff, Joe Cahill, who came to the United States pretty frequently. And he'd do these big fundraising events at these like ballrooms in Queens. Um, and of course, he was like followed around by the INS who was doing surveillance on him and had a van parked outside of the house where he was staying. Uh, but an FBI agent actually told us that uh, some NYPD officers spotted this INS van that was doing surveillance on him, and they walk over and start rocking it back and forth, back and forth until they flip it over. Um, so, like, you know, cops aren't just like giving spare change to the IRA, um, but like literally, you know, flipping over federal surveillance vans on their behalf. Yeah, solidarity means attack. Uh, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. All feds are bastards, you know. <laughs> but have you read um, Jared Shanahan's book, Captives, about Rikers? I listened to your interview with him, but I haven't mm. read the book yet. There's yeah, yet. so many stories of incredible police and prison guard riots in that book. I mean, mm-hmm. all of them are for bad things, um, but <laughs> right, like yeah. they throw down. And I don't yeah. think people really understand how much they like to throw down. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, they even like, you know... It ends up sort of like spooking uh, the FBI, which essentially, you know, refuses to work with the NYPD on some operations because they're just so concerned that the NYPD is going to tip off Irish Northern Aid or people in the IRA. Um, it's sort of amazing um, that it even like reaches up into the federal government like that. Yeah, it's at a. It's like in this period in the '80s when you have this like emergence of the Joint Terrorism Task Force. You know, like these integration between the FBI and local police forces, especially the NYPD. And like this guy, this FBI agent that we talked to, who was tasked with like setting up the sort of like a domestic anti-terror group, was just like, we we will be totally cut off from the NYPD. We can't have any sharing with them whatsoever because they can't be trusted. He didn't, he actually even, he was, he was suspicious, even though he was Irish American, he was, very careful about Irish American FBI agents. So there was there was even suspicions that like um, federal employees, you know, federal law enforcement uh, of Irish descent were not trustworthy, um, and that some of the you know like some of the guns that had been smuggled over must have passed through sympathetic customs, you know, officers' hands and things like that, and that maybe customs officials had turned a blind eye to some of it. Um, he was that was like his opinion that he put forward. Mm-hmm. Well, this isn't a, a position I necessarily endorse. I don't think Marx and Engels were right about everything, but I want to read to you a quote from The Conditions of the Working Class in England by uh, Engels in 1845. Are you familiar with this book? Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> and so there's a chapter on Irish immigration uh, where. Um, it seems that the point of it is that the uh, uh, increase of millions of Irish Im- immigrants in, in England has depressed the wages and depressed the uh, moral character of the working class in England in general. 
Angles doesn't uh, spare any punches uh, when he's talking about uh, the Irish people, uh, many of whom I think are probably working for him or for his family. So here's a quote. Uh, 